This call is being recorded. Well, I've been sitting here all day I've been sitting in this waiting room And I've been waiting on my friends Yes, I'm waiting on this conference call All alone And I'm on hold Well, yes, I'm on hold I hope it's not all day Well, I wonder where they are, yes, I wonder where my friends have gone. Where did they go? Tell me, where could they be while I'm waiting on this conference call? I don't know. Well, I'm holding on my phone, yes, I'm holding on the line. Hey. Well, I don't know where they are. I I don't know why I'm still alone mm -hmm. I'm on hold Oh yes, I'm on hold I hope it's not all day Hey! Well, let me tell y'all a story about a man who was on hold all day Yes, he was Now Maybe he had the time wrong, and maybe he didn't. There's just no way for me to say. And yes, I have seen some long hold times in my day. Yes, I have. And this was one of the worst. Now, this young man did not hang up the telephone, and you guess what happened. Ah, <laughs> yeah. That call began. That call started. So stay on hold. Gotta stay on hold Ooh, Don't go away Hey, how's it going, Max? Pretty good. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, I just turned up the volume on my phone and you sound great. All right, perfect. I can hear you. Um, thanks for calling in. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, asking to have me on. I feel honored. So uh, just to give you a little background on how this is going to go, and please excuse my voice. I'm suffering from a cold. I feel like everybody suffers from a cold at this time of year. So just <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. Another victim. Uh, but to tell you what's going to happen, basically the start of the show, I'll introduce you. Um, like I'll introduce the show and then I'll introduce you. And then we'll start talking. First, we're going to talk about your late night influences to your comedy. And don't worry if you didn't have any. We'll just talk about your influences in general. 
Um, and then we'll just see where that goes and we'll start talking. Okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, awesome. And do you have any questions for me or any time constraints that I need to know about? Uh, no, I think you told me uh, 45 minutes to an hour, and that works uh, perfectly with me. And I checked out uh, the website that you sent over to me. So, oh, all right, some of your great. guests and stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, then, if you just give me, <clears throat> it'll be like one to two seconds of silence, and then I'll start the show. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, one other note. Um, I do. I have a dog in my house, so she might at some point randomly bark, but it can just be a, a fun moment at the podcast if that happens. That, that's okay. I'm I'm in a a friend of mine's house, and she has two dogs, so it happens. Oh, okay. Cool. Oh man, you're out dogging me right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, sometimes they'll they'll come in and they start they start going at it, but we'll see. We'll just see. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, yeah. Give me. Like I said, one to two seconds, it'll be silent, and then I'll hop in. And thanks again for being on. Thanks for having me. Sounds good. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max Cantor. Thank you for tuning in. And please excuse my, my voice and my inevitable coughing on this show. I'm suffering from a cold like I feel like everybody in the Atlanta and really the world is doing right now. Um, but today... On the show, I have a guest who has dedicated his life to telling jokes and making people laugh. So not only is he a professional stand-up comedian, but he's also the host of Good Evening Tonight over at Highwire Comedy Company. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Travis Jones. Travis, welcome to the show. Oh my God, so many fans. So great. Uh, thanks for having me, Max. Uh, it's, it's really awesome to be on the show. No problem, and I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about Good Evening Tonight because this show uh, was started to talk to comedians about their late-night influences, but you actually host your own late-night talk show, so it's like the perfect person to have on. I know. If, if anything, I'm a late-night talk show influencer, so you're really, yeah. like, going to the source here. <laughs> That's true. So in the future, when I, when I ask people, I'll say, so who, who influenced you? You know, was it David Letterman? Was it Conan? Was it Travis Jones? <laughs> and if people don't say that, I will quit the show, just as an ultimatum if anyone's listening right now. Look, it's, it's understandable. I completely agree. But to jump right in with the interview, um, let me ask you, growing up, what late night influenced you in your comedy? So I feel like uh, I so I do host Good Evening Tonight. Um, I'm also a stand-up comedian. I run a few shows in Atlanta, and I perform in a lot of shows. And I feel like a lot of stand-ups say this, but I mean, it's got to be Conan O'Brien for me. Um, I loved Conan so much growing up, and I remember like maybe not even necessarily getting all of the jokes, but just like I was the only person uh, awake in my house. And I would just be standing in front of my TV and just like at volume like three overall or something. I'd be watching Conan until like one o'clock in the morning back when he had that late nighttime slot. Right. So were you were did you grow up an only child? Yeah, I grew up an only child. Yeah. OK, so your parents weren't really into it. It was just you. Yeah, um, my dad was, like, pretty, like, anytime I put comedy on, he was like, what is this? This is awful. Turn this off. Uh, actually, with one of the few exceptions uh, to that rule being The Daily Show, uh, which is another huge late-night influence, and also a big influence for Good Evening Tonight. 
Um, but yeah, um, yeah, definitely I was the only person in my house that watched or probably even knew who Conan O'Brien was. Um, yeah, so I just kind of, a lot of late nights watching very weird, weird television, especially because when Conan was on super late, they did some very odd stuff, which uh, was awesome to me when I was in my formative years. And how old were you when you were watching Conan? Oh, man. Um, I probably was watching Conan probably starting around like 11 or 12 years old, maybe. Okay, so what drew you to it? I mean, I know you said the, like, absurdity to it, but were you watching it to see the interviews or the sketches or the banter between Conan and Andy Richter? What drew you to it? It was mostly just, like, uh, for some reason, basically for as long as I can remember, I would just gravitate towards comedy on TV. Like, I was always watching Comedy Central. I've seen so many, like, uh, terrible Comedy Central shows that were, like, canceled after a season or whatever. Um, like, I've seen a ton of stand-up specials and stuff like that. I remember going on, like, family trips and, again, being, like, the only one up late at night because I was an only child. So it was just, like, my grandparents, my parents, and I. And it was basically just, like, oh, what is this uh, – Bill Ingvall on country music television. I guess I'll watch that. Oh, what's that? Earthquake is on BET doing stand-up. All right, I guess I'll watch that. Um, and Conan was just one of those things that was on late at night. It was interesting. And then I think, like, Conan's sensibilities I just clicked with. So and then instead of surfing the channels, I just ended up watching Conan because I thought he was just the funniest dude in the world. Do you have a Conan moment from your youth that, like, stands out to you? Um... Oh, man, uh, there was one sketch, um, and it was like um, an on-the-road piece, sort of, and Conan went out and um, played, like, old-timey baseball, <laughs> and I don't even remember what the context was for it, but I just remember he talked in an old-timey voice like this, and he went out there, and he just kind of riffed some bits, and I thought that was, like, the funniest thing in the world. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, him and Andy Richter doing, like, in the year 2000, um, which is basically just like absurd phrases uh, said very dramatically. And I remember those two things sticking out to me a lot. The thing that I find crazy about the uh, like beginning of Conan's late night career, and I didn't know this until recently, but when he first started, like he got ripped by critics and they like, like came for him hard. And then obviously he proved them on all wrong and he's, you know, a legend now, but at the beginning, it was, it was just, I find it interesting that he really had to overcome all the hate he got for being weird. I know, yeah. And he really, like, I feel like he opened the door for a lot of, like, I hate the phrase alternative comedy, but that is sort of a genre of comedy now. And I think that, that like, Conan's prevalence kind of allowed for people to be a little bit weirder and more absurd. Um, but, yeah, you know, critics are just like, this isn't what I'm used to. This isn't, like, a clubby guy at a desk that's trying to be Johnny Carson. He's his own weird thing, and I, I haven't seen it before, so I hate it. Um, but it's nice that uh, he didn't get canceled. They let him do his thing. Right. I mean, and he's grown and grown and grown. Now he, he's up there on the Mount Rushmore, I would say, or close to the Mount Rushmore late-night host. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. He's, he's got to be up there at this point. Um, and he has such, like, an interesting, like, storyline and, like, with all the drama that happened with him and, uh, and like, late night shows and all that sort of stuff. It's been, like, very interesting to watch. But I think, like, down to it, uh, the thing that's been awesome and what he got ripped for early and probably why he didn't end up getting the Tonight Show job was just because he stuck to his roots and uh, is just always very absurd and silly.
Yeah, for sure. I remember I went through a big, big Conan phase when I was in elementary school and middle school. And I remember when he got the Tonight Show, I was so excited. I watched every single episode religiously. And then I remember when they announced like Jay Leno was coming back. I vividly remember watching Conan's like ending episodes for the Tonight Show. And he would do these bits where it, it was called like blowing NBC's budget, where he would just do these outrageous. <laughs> yes. Things. And I thought it was so funny. And it was such a, you know, stick it to the man type of comedy that I just, I, I was so impressed by the guts to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's like sort of meta and also, yeah, sticking it to the man. And then, yeah, that reminds me of like for a while, he just had like um, like a lever next to his desk and he would crank it and it would just show like Chuck Norris clips. <laughs> just random Texas, like Walker, Texas Ranger clips. Which is something that you would like do at like a, like a CD comedy club at like like an alternative comedy club at like a midnight show, but to like do that on NBC mid conversation, just cut to Walker Texas Ranger and make people watch that. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. So when you're watching this as a kid, are you picking up like quirks and bits that Conan does, and you're trying to replicate them for your friends and family? Um. Yeah, I think so. Um, definitely, like, when I started doing sketch comedy, I think a lot of it kind of derived from um, sort of the absurd off-the-wall stuff. Um, and then he just has, like, little tics and mannerisms um, that uh, I think probably influenced the way that I just kind of joke around and stuff like that. And I for sure practice his little string dance that he does when he comes out probably, like, 3,000 times, I would say, in my life. I can never quite do it like Conan can, but he's he's got that lanky man body, so he's able to jiggle them limbs around. Right, he's like a marionette puppet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So you mentioned earlier how, like, your dad wasn't really into comedy. So what was that like, you know, when you first were like, okay, I'm going to be a comedian? How did your family take it? Uh. So when I uh, told my parents I was going to start doing comedy, my mom is, as always, incredibly supportive. She was like, you're going to be so great. You're so funny. You're a genius. The world's going to love you. And then I went to my dad, and he was like, ah, don't quit your day job. Like, that's, that's fine. Don't quit your day job. And I was like, I want it to be my day job, Dad. Um, but it's good. He's, he's been, like, tacitly supportive. And then uh, as I've continued to do it and continued, he's like, oh, you're, like, actually serious about this, and you grind and work on it and stuff. Uh, he's been more, uh, he's been more into it. Um, I think he's been to like one show. It was a, a best of Atlanta show at Laughing Skull Lounge in uh, in Midtown. And uh, I actually didn't have a great set that night, but afterwards he comes to me and he's like, the guy in front of you was really good. I was like, all right, you didn't need to come to the show. I get it. Um, but yeah, but it's definitely been interesting. Well, I know that you didn't really, you know, commit yourself to comedy till after college so what was that like you know in high school when you're picking what you want to do for college and a major were you considering doing comedy or that wasn't even on the radar i actually remember uh in um i want to say it was like sometime in middle school um a girl moved to our country from china and uh, I was nice to her, and so we exchanged email addresses, and she basically didn't know anyone, and she was trying to make friends. And she was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And for some reason, I said stand-up comedian, and I thought of that um, pretty recently, that I said that, and I was like, pretty young. But then I never really considered that it was something that someone could really do. 
I was like, you probably got to be born outside of a comedy club in L.A., and that's the only way you can do it. Um, and so I, I always, like, kind of prided myself on being, like, witty and funny in high school and college and stuff like that. Um, I was on my debate team in high school, so I got some good public speaking skills. I uh, worked for the newspaper. I was very cool. I was on the debate team. I was on the newspaper. So, that, like, that helped with the writing. Um, and then I worked for, our, uh, in college, um, basically, like, a, a version of The Onion, sort of, for my college. So, I was, like, sort of dabbled in, like, the same pool. But then, yeah, coming out of college, I got, like, an office job, and I was bored out of my mind every day. And so, I started listening to podcasts, and a lot of them, because I've always gravitated towards comedy, were comedy podcasts and uh, people describing how they got started. And I was like, I could do this. And so I took a class, and the class wasn't good, but it made me get on stage, and then I just kept doing it, basically. So what was your original major? Uh, I mean, what was your major in college? So I was a human geography major in college. I went in with, like, no idea what I was going to do. Actually, I kind of wanted to be, uh, like, be, like, a newspaper person. Um, obviously, it did not turn out that way because I just described myself as a newspaper person, which is not what journalists call themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, I worked in a newspaper in high school. I was like, I'll keep it rolling in college. Pretty much every newspaper class I went to, they were like, guys, the medium's dying. Things are real bad out there. I, like, I guess I should switch majors. Um, and I took a geography class and it was interesting. Human geography is a lot like uh, sociology or anthropology. So you're kind of just like breaking down and studying groups of people. Um, in like different regions and socioeconomic classes and stuff like that. So it's not applicable to like any actual job, but I think that it was actually really good in terms of like breaking down things observationally and like critically thinking about how the world works. So it's kind of a nice thing to fall into because uh, of the dying newspaper medium. Have you ever incorporated what you learned in that major of human geography into your comedy today? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I do have a joke about Nicaragua, which I learned about in school, but also my dad dad moved there. Um, so it's more about that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would say, like, tangentially, probably a lot of, like, the critical thinking that I do came from there. But no, I took a lot of, like, geography of human rights, and those classes are huge bummers. And, like, guys, you know what was funny about Bosnia in the 90s? Like, you don't want to go into that. Um, so yeah, it's probably more tangential than anything. And where did, where did you, uh, go to college? I went to the University of Georgia. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, yeah, one of the big old state school, basically. And actually, Athens has a really good comedy scene now, and they probably had shows when I was there too, but I never, like, ran across that world at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, but I always wondered, like, starting in college, like, I, I feel like it would be very hard to be relatable to people um, at that age trying to do comedy. So I don't know how it would have gone. But it is funny that there's, like, a big scene there now. Well, uh, that's actually what I was going to ask you is I was going to ask um, after finding out where you went to college, I was going to ask you what the comedy scene was like there. But did you know of any type of stand-up or improv things going on when you were in Athens back in college? The only thing that I did was I saw Daniel Tosh, but that was, like, at, like, the student center. Like, freshman year, they, like, brought him in to be like, here's something kids can do and not drink for a night. We'll bring in a comedian. Um, <laughs> and uh, that was before he, like, totally blew up and had his own show and stuff like that. Um, but after that, uh, nothing. 
Like I never like heard of or ran across open mics or like book shows or anything like that. Um, yeah, and maybe it was just like the circles I ran in. I don't know. But um, now it seems like you uh, kill. It's like hard to avoid almost the way that it is now. Right, and I feel like you know now knowing that you're a Georgia Bulldog, that I should just get this out of the way. Uh, I am a Florida Gator fan. Oh God, I gotta hang up, Max. I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting into. Look, I felt an obligation to tell you, and I think that <laughs> that says something. Well, you guys are aren't having a great year, so I guess I'll throw you a bone. No pun intended okay. for the dog aspect of things. That's true. All the respect goes to to you in Georgia, because okay, oh yeah, well, I can't say anything about University of Florida and their football. But <laughs> to, to talk about after you left Athens, you graduate, you get your desk job. You said you're listening to podcasts. Do you remember what specific podcast you were listening to? Um, so weirdly enough, uh, or maybe not weirdly enough for for people, I guess. Um, but uh, I used so I. Uh, Grew up uh, liking sports a lot, so at work, pretty much I like I ran through all the music that I liked because I just kind of work on Excel spreadsheets all day. Uh, and then I was like, I guess I'll start listening to like sports radio to like kill time. And then I just went out of my mind crazy listening to like local sports radio for eight hours a day. It was it was the most insane thing I've ever done. Uh, just so many hot takes and uh, just terrible ideas. Um, and so then I started, like, kind of venturing into podcasts. I heard my friend was like, oh, I listen to the Adam Carolla podcast. Um, and I never loved the Adam Carolla podcast that much. Sorry, Adam, if you're listening. Um, but it did get me into, like, listening to podcasts. And some of his guests, like Doug Benson, came on there. And I was like, oh, I've seen Doug stand up. So I started listening to Doug Loves Movies. And then through that, I found out about, like, Pete Holmes and You Made It Weird and Scott Ackerman and Comedy Bang Bang. And now I have this huge repertoire of uh, comedy podcasts that I listened to. But uh, yeah, it was the Adam Carolla podcast that first introduced me to the world of comedy pods. Okay, so when you're listening to the podcast and you decide, all right, you know, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a comedian. Is the first thing that you think, okay, I'm going to be a comedian and I'm going to host my own podcast? Or did you jump right into, I want to do stand-up? Yeah, pretty much it was like, I want to do stand-up. Um, I definitely am working on a podcast currently, um, but it was pretty much from the get-go. I was like, I've always gravitated towards stand-up. Uh, I've never, like, done any sort of acting or anything like that, so, like, uh, improv and sketch seemed very intimidating. Um, subsequently, after taking my stand-up class, I then got into improv and sketch, and I love them, and they're great, and people should do them. Um, but... Yeah, it was pretty much just like, uh, I want to try stand-up. I think I'd be good at it. Let's dive in. And then uh, everything else kind of unfurled from there. Okay, and tell me about that first class that you took involving stand-up. Sure. Um, I won't say where I took it um, because their class structure has changed since then. Um, And I'm I'm sure it's a lot better now. But when I took it, it was not great. Um, it was, um, someone who like, uh, the teacher wasn't super into it. Like they showed up every time, but they didn't have a good structure. Um, and the people that were there, it was like half of the people had like gotten it as a gift. They're like, Oh, here's a stand-up class for present. Like, I guess I'll check it out. And then the other half of the class is me, people who like, were like, I'm in this, I'm hungry. I want to like learn how to do stand-up. And so we ended up just spending a lot of the classes just kind of, you know, um, 
just kind of messing around and killing time. And we only really wrote like one set from the beginning to the end. Like I would have loved instructions on like uh, how to write jokes or how to identify good ideas versus bad ideas or um, yeah, like any, any sort of that stuff, like, you know, the different directions and joke structures that there are. But it was sort of like, all right, well, well write down some ideas. We'll come in. We'll talk about them. And then, like, that first sheet of paper that we wrote ended up being what we talked about on the last thing. Um, and so it felt very narrow and not well thought out. So it was a frustrating experience. But it, through that class, I met someone that sent me a list of all the open mics in Atlanta. At the end, I performed. I liked the feeling of performing. I was super nervous doing it, and I felt like I did an okay job at best. Um, but then I felt the call, and I uh, hit up that open mic list. And then uh, it's actually interesting when you're first starting out, especially for me. Like, I've lived in Atlanta my whole life, but, like, getting this list of, like, 50 open mics, and then you just go off, like, wandering into, like, the wilderness of Atlanta and, like, checking out different parts of town you've never been to, bars that you would never, ever go to, but they have a microphone and you can do five minutes there. Uh, you kind of like learn a lot of cool different places and uh, like meet a lot of really interesting people and watch a lot of terrible comedy along the way because open mics are generally terrible, but they are productive and they can be fun. Well, I was going to ask, you know, on your first time getting up there in front of an audience that's not this class, you know, they're strangers, you've never performed it's your very first time. What's going through your mind? Um, it's sort of like you're panicking that you're going to forget everything because uh, you like you've never done it before, and um, yeah, that's sort of like the panic because you'll go up there and you'll freeze up and you won't get any laughs. Uh, I remembered all my jokes, but one of them happening is that I, uh, for some reason, I I never did this before, but I like I had a long sleeve shirt on and I tucked it in. No idea why I did that, so I walked out looking like a big goober. Um, and then I walked out and I looked down the entire time. I never looked up at the audience and I paced around very quickly and I talked very fast. So it's like the stuff that I wrote for my first set probably wasn't the worst. Um, but it was like the delivery was terrible because I was just out of my mind nervous. Um, but I, getting laughs was like an amazing feeling and, uh, like stepping out onto a stage with the bright lights, like, um, at a, a venue that I had been to several times and like really enjoyed. Uh, it was a really cool experience, but, uh, yeah, I was really nervous. I was just going to forget everything the second I walked on stage. What are some of the things, you know, backstage that people are telling you before you go up for the first time? Are they trying to like mess with you and get in your head or are they cheering you on? <laughs> the class was, uh, the class was really supportive. And that is what's nice about the Atlantic comedy scene is like, it's huge and there's a million shows and, uh, people are competing for like real comedy jobs like a lot of people have gotten uh legit stuff out of atlanta recently some atlanta comics have won last comic standing dulce sloan from atlanta just got added to the daily show so it's starting to become more like there's more industry here um but in general there's not and it's like it's just people are doing shows because they like doing shows there's a lot of them to do and everyone's supportive and it's great and that's how it felt the first time it's like everyone in the class wanted everyone else to do really well um, but because it's everyone's first time, everyone was pretty much in their own head, making sure they didn't forget their own stuff. Um, and then the teacher, because he wasn't super into it, was just kind of off in his own world. <laughs> um, so it was sort of like an, an isolationary experience, I guess, if isolationary is a word. Well, it is now because you said it. Yeah, coin it, baby. <laughs> Do you remember 
your first joke that you wrote? Um, oh man. Um <laughs> what was the first joke that I wrote? I remember talking about um I've always hated the beach. Um and uh so I had a joke that was like very anti beach. Um and I think it was like, Oh, it's hot and there's sand everywhere, like if I want to be in a body of water and look at uh, hot girls, I'll sit in my bathtub and watch Game of Thrones, which is a terrible joke. Um, uh, I've gotten much better by then, if anyone is thinking about coming to see me. Um, but yeah, it, it was something like that. I think it was like one of the few ones I can remember. So after you graduated this class, what did you do in the comedy world? Um, I pretty much just went to open mics for like a year and a half before anyone noticed who I was. Uh, and then I started getting booked on more stuff. Well, I guess also um, probably six months into comedy, I uh, took improv classes uh, at Relapse Theater and um, really liked improv. Uh, improv was great. I met some really good people doing that. Um, and so for a while, I was doing probably like 70% stand-up, 30% improv, just kind of bouncing around the scene, uh, between the two scenes. Um, but generally for the first year and a half to two years, it was going to a bunch of bars, uh, feeling pretty intimidated because like, you know, all the comics have been doing it for like a year or more. They all know each other. They see each other at all the shows. Uh, they talk to each other. They gravitate towards each other. But if you're someone that's done three shows, you walk in and you feel like, oh my God, there's this like giant, click of people who do comedy all the time and I've never done it and I feel very unqualified and my jokes are not good. Um, so it was a lot of just going to bars, kind of sitting in the back, uh, slowly meeting other new people. And then what is interesting about starting is that there's always people starting at the same time with you. And then you kind of rise in the scene together. Like, you know, eventually your people have all been doing it for three years and you're established and you have shows and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's also a lot of figuring out what shows are worth doing and what shows aren't and what rooms are good and what rooms aren't. Um, because you can spend a lot of time just going to rooms that are just not set up for comedy. Um, and it's actually counterproductive to go there, but you don't realize that until you've done it for a while. And you're like, I don't think I'm getting anything going, getting anything out of driving 40 minutes to go to this place. So when you say a room that's not set up for comedy, what do you mean? Um, Sometimes people are like, hey, I know the manager of this restaurant. I've done stand-up comedy for six months. Uh, we're going to do a stand-up show. Um, but maybe the way that the restaurant is situated, uh, there's not good viewing lines for people. Maybe it's a venue where people really just enjoy going to eat dinner, and they don't want to be surprised by a comedy show because they want to, like, go get, like, a hamburger with their friends. Um, bars that... Um, yeah, I mean, there are just like certain spaces when you see them and you're like, all right, this is a room. Noise is a big thing. So like uh, I run a show called Date Night in East Atlanta. Uh, it's in Brigantine Beer Parlor. And uh, uh, that room uh, came upon me in a period of time where I was like, I'm running like five shows right now. I'm driving myself crazy. I'm not going to do any more shows. Uh, but then I saw this room and it was like the back room at a bar. It's very small and it's very intimate. Uh, it's a very interesting room and the acoustics are really good. 
like the ideal comedy room, like the Laughing Skull Lounge in Midtown is a good example. It's like, it's uh, 80 seats, which is like, it's not like a theater or anything. Like it's a pretty small room, but everyone's packed in there. It's dark and you can hear what's happening. Um, a lot of times people book shows in like these giant sprawling spaces. Um, and it's just, it's too much room in between people and too much room in between you and the audience. People are just there to eat a hamburger, and then all of a sudden it's just like a room full of people like, well, I'm going to give up on listening to this. And then you have five comedians that are just kind of talking into the void for an hour and a half until the microphone's turned off. So for you, it's very important with your comedy that you are in a more intimate setting with the audience. Is that accurate to say? I would say if you're looking for like maximum fun between you and the audience, like that definitely helps. Um, there are some spaces that are like um, just like these giant open venues. And like, let's say there's like, uh, like the old improv. Uh, I don't think the improv's coming back, so I can probably talk about it in this capacity. Um, it was in Buckhead and it was, uh, they had great comedians come through there, but it was basically like a warehouse space and it had these really high ceilings and um, they would fit 200 people in there. And, uh, you know, it's like way more than like a small 80 room club, but, it just it's just so big and the laughs get lost ceiling and you're far away from people um and they're like uh eating dinner and stuff like that it's just like it you can do just as well and you can feel great about your set but it's just different from being in like a, a smaller more intimate space um which is also what's nice about highwire where we do good evening tonight is like it's a black box theater and it feels like this is the only thing that's going on in the world when you're in there first, like this giant open environment where uh, it's easy to get distracted or for uh, noise to get lost. So how do you feel about those comedians who nowadays are selling out basketball arenas and football stadiums? What do you think of that? Number one, high five and a handshake. That is amazing that they can do that. Um, like, uh, it boggles my mind that anyone would really go see stand-up. It's such a weird thing. Um, it's just one person talking into a mic and everyone's like, ha ha, yeah, and they clap. Uh, it's weird that it happens. Um, so the fact that it happens at all is great. And then the fact that people can sell at a stadium is like crazy. Um, I saw, I've seen some pretty big comedians at the Fox before and like they sound good and their jokes are good, but it's like they look like like a Lego figure, you know? And um, if you didn't go see comedy all the time, you'd probably say, that was great. That was a great show. But then if you see one of those comedians, uh, if you're lucky enough to see them, um, like you go to like the Comedy Cellar in New York and like uh, someone famous pops in and you see them like 10 feet away from you, it just is an entirely different experience. Uh, and yeah, it does feel more intimate, which I think for stand-up is like really huge. When it comes to stand-up, I mean, obviously the words that you're saying are very critical, but how important are facial expressions and pauses and, you know, the, the nonverbal communication? It's so big, man. It's crazy. Um, and that's something that uh, I think is, is the, the biggest challenge that I've given myself moving forward is, is to kind of deal with some of that stuff. Um, because it is crazy. You'll watch some people that are masters of the craft and like they can say like five words, do a pause, make a facial expression and they get like an applause break. It's crazy. It's all about just like leading people to where you want them to go. And then like sometimes like 
just the simple nuance of like raising an eyebrow or something like that can bring down a room. Uh, and it's insane. And it, but it, it also, it's weird how like crazy specific it is to like any given person, like, you know, uh, going to see a book show in Atlanta, you might see someone who's very much like a Todd Berry and they just come up and they very quietly say all of their jokes and they don't react and they just give you their jokes. And then the next person comes up and they're just crazy pacing back and forth and like yelling the whole time. Um, and uh, one of the things I tend to talk very fast, I tend to like have a bunch of energy when I'm on stage, but I found that like sometimes just sitting back and like letting a laugh hit people because um, it will take you a second, you know, you process it, you think, oh, that's funny, but then you need another second to like actually laugh. And if you just like snap, 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 move on to the next thing, people will enjoy themselves. But it's very different from like saying something, kind of getting a wave, and then you can almost get a pause and then like, oh, another round of people get it. Um, so that, that's huge. I've also heard stuff like, uh, like comedians shouldn't have beards because like your face is like one of your biggest weapons and like, why would you not like, hide your quirky little smiles or whatever. Um, but I think you can definitely get away with uh, with having a beard or wearing a hat or something like that. But it's huge. And, and it's crazy how just, you know, some of that is instinct, but the rest of it is just doing a joke 200 times. And you're like, for some reason, when I shrug at this exact second, people really like it. Right. It's the repetitions. Yeah. So when you see a comedian succeed, what's typically the number one reason why they're succeeding? It's so much about relatability. Um, like there are some comics who there are certain spots where they'll go and they will just absolutely crush day in and day out. Like they'll be in like a weird hipster room and everyone will just think they're the funniest person in the world. Then that person will go to a club and that's people who are used to like 80s style, my wife jokes and stuff like that. And they don't know how to handle that person's like weird jokes about suicide and like stuff like that. Um, and then you'll have a person who, you know, works at like a club all the time and they're like, you know, making like typical like drinking and uh, girlfriend or boyfriend jokes and stuff like that. Um, and then they go to like a more alternative room and then those people are like, this isn't what we want to see. This feels hacky to us. But then there are some people that are able to just like walk into any room. Every audience is like on their side, even like, um, you know, if you're not like the same race or gender as a person, but they have something that's very specific to that, you can still make those things relatable to someone. And that's like the greatest power that you can have. So much of stand-up is like getting people on board with you and having them like be like, you know what, I like this person and I'm along for the ride. And if you can go and do that in any room, that's what truly does make you great instead of just like finding a niche. And finding a niche is great, especially with like, um, you know, podcasts and the internet and uh, all that sort of stuff. Like you can find your niche and live in there and that's great. But if you want to like take it to another level, it's all about being able to make any crowd relate to you. Um, and sometimes that's material. It's like some some things are universal and everyone's going to understand it. But a lot of the time it's just being able to take your experiences and make other people um, kind of like walk in your shoes a little bit, if that makes sense. Now, tell me your experience about your greatest set of all time. Oh, man. Greatest set of all time. Um, 
I uh, I do a lot of different stuff, so there's like a few different answers. Um, I'm just so good at comedy. I have so many good sets. Uh, like I do, uh, Joe Pettis, who's a great uh, comic in Atlanta, um, does uh, roasts every month. He does like the roast of Game of Thrones, the Star Wars roast, and stuff like that. Um, I've done a few of those roasts. I did the Star Wars roast by myself, and then I did the Game of Thrones roast with my wife, who's also a comedian. Um, and just something about like being in character and just roasting the shit out of somebody, uh, and this the crowd being so on board is awesome. And those crowds are like so into it um, that it's great. Um, I also uh, I think one of the best sets I've ever had. I did the Laughing Skull Festival two years ago. Um, and I had had pretty good sets and there was one late night show at Smith's Old Bar, which is a really good venue. And they were like, all right, guys, this is the industry show. Like industry is going to be here. There's going to be people that like book big things that are going to be watching. And, uh, I just sort of got in the zone and I went out there and I had like one of the best sets of my life. No one ever contacted me afterwards. No industry ever did anything, but I went out there and all my jokes hit really hard. Um, I can get pretty theatrical um, with my set. Um, I do a lot of, like, act-outs and stuff like that, and I got, like, super, super into them, and I think I sold them really well. Uh, and it felt good to be in, like, a high-pressure environment like that and have a good set, even if nothing came of it. Right. Well, that's awesome. I love hearing those stories where people, like, go out there and they just kick ass. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But tell me now, on the flip side, tell me about the worst set that you ever had and then how you mentally dealt with that. Oh, man. Um, so I would say uh, this is another festival story. Probably what feels so good about them is that um, sort of the, the path that you take in comedy is you grind it out at open mics for like a year and a half, two years, however long. Sometimes it takes people five years. Sometimes people in six months are starting to get booked on other stuff. Um, so, you know, however long it takes you, you grind it out at open mics. Eventually people have book shows that you get booked on. The clubs start booking you on stuff. But then the ultimate goal is to start getting into comedy festivals around the country. And that allows you to meet comics from other cities. That way you can like travel to New York or LA or Chicago or Milwaukee or whatever, and have shows that you can do that aren't uh, crappy bar shows. Um, so festivals are a big deal, and that's also where industry can see you and you get to travel to cool places. Um, so for the past uh, few years, I've been applying to and doing a fair amount of those. Um, and those are more like prestigious and more high pressure. So the, the highs are a lot higher and the lows are a lot lower. So I got into Devil Cup, which is a comedy festival in New York, um, during the summer of this year, 2017. Okay, someone's listening to this in the future and wanted to know specifics about the date. Um, and it's a, so it, it's, it's weird. It's a, it's a comedy competition, but the way that it works is that you cannot repeat material. You do four minutes in the first round. Half the people get cut. If you move on, you do seven minutes, half the people get cut. And then I think you do 12 minutes in the finals. Um, so I flew to New York and was like, all right, I, I have to do well at this show. Um, but I had been feeling really good. I had been running my sets that I was going to do up there. Like I had a four-minute set ready. I had a seven-minute set ready. I had a 12-minute set ready. And I had been running all of those sets, and I felt really good about all my material. It had been going so well for like a month. 
it was like pretty fresh stuff that I had written pretty recently. So I didn't hate it yet because at a certain point you start to hate jokes you've been doing for like three years. Um, and I went up there and I felt great. And uh, I went to, um, I think it was Broadway Comedy Club. It was just like a little comedy club uh, on Broadway in New York. Not as fancy as it sounds. Um, and the, the crowd was really hot. They loved like all of the comedians. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. I feel great about my material. And I went up there and I did my first joke. And people were like, okay. Like I got some laughs. And then I was like, okay, that's weird. Like, that joke has been, like, out of the gate just crushing for a month. Like, okay. And then I did the second joke, and I just got complete silence. And at that point, like, you're super in your head. You're like, I, like I, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You're, like, watching yourself bomb because it's so quiet and because you're so confused. And I did my third joke, and I was like, this is my big closer. It always works. And people, again, were not on board. And I was like, all right, well, I just flew to New York, and then I bombed for four minutes, and then I got off stage, and I was like, well, I guess this festival's over for me. And then the next person went up, and they had a great set. And I don't under, I still don't understand what happened. I have this shirt. It's a, um, it's a button-up short sleeve shirt with lobsters on it. And I think I just went up there, and they were just like, usually every comedy show, they pick one or two people that an audience just hates. I don't know why they do it. Usually it's a great comic, and the audience just for some reason does not like them. I think I went up there with that goofy shirt on, and they're like, this guy's trying way too hard wearing a goofy shirt. And they just shut me down right out of the gate. Um, also, maybe I was way too overconfident in all of my jokes. That could be it, too. Um, but, yeah, that was frustrating because, you know, you fly across the country to do a festival you're excited about with high expectations, do nothing immediately out of the festival. Um, so that was just like, and then like, uh, I guess the other part of your question is mentally dealing with that. And uh, early on, uh, I remember I did a show and I bombed really bad and then I didn't do another show for six months just because it hurt so bad. But at a certain point, you just kind of get numb to it. You're like, well, I have like an 80% success rate, which is good. But that like one out of every five shows is going to be weird. Uh, and unfortunately, just fell on that day. So it was more... Um, it was like a little bit frustrating, but it wasn't super psychologically damaging. The nice thing was that I, uh, a fair amount of Atlanta comics have moved up to New York recently, so I got to do a few other sets while I was up there, and then all of the same material that I did in that festival set did well in all of the other shows, which is like a real, like, I'm really glad this works. I really wish it had worked the other night, but it's a good to know that, like, I, I had faith in my jokes, at least, for a good reason. So when you watch another comedian and they don't do well, um, how, how, how do I word this? So you watch another comedian, they don't do well. How do you know that it's, you know, how, how can you tell them if it's the material or maybe they're just not funny or it's their pauses? You know, how, how can you tell what makes somebody not funny? Yeah, I definitely say that when you, when you've done it for a while, you can watch and like sometimes it can be a great comic that's not doing well and you're like the crowd just doesn't like them for some reason tonight. Um and then for everyone else it's yeah, just kind of like you see enough open mics and you're like uh this person has good ideas but their jokes are way too long. Like they've been talking to us for 4 minutes. They should have said like 
uh, like, what's your thesis statement a lot of times is, is what it comes down to. Like, I want to know what your thesis statement is. If you can make it as succinct as possible, then that's great. Um, definitely one thing is, like, pacing and running through jokes. Because um, it's amazing. Like, you can make stuff that's not funny funny just by doing the right pacing uh, if the crowd's on your side. So a lot of the times it's like, oh, man, I really like that joke. If they had slowed it down or sped it up, like, it, it would have been great. Um, and that's just sort of a feel thing, and, and it's different for every person. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes you watch someone. Um, I've, I've run a lot of open mics. I ran uh, an open mic at a place called The Local, which was on Ponce. And if you performed, you got a free beer ticket, which was like, or a drink ticket, which was probably the worst idea because then it, gen it just encouraged, like, people that wandered off of Ponce to start doing stand-up for five minutes. And I had to listen to a lot of really hateful stuff that people said. Uh, but it's an open mic, and you're allowed to say whatever you want. But sometimes someone starts talking about a subject, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're going to voice these opinions out loud in public. And I hope they never do comedy again. Right. Uh, is your comedy more like storytelling or more set-up punchline, set-up punchline? So my comedy traditionally has been more observational and storytelling. Um, okay. I would say my average joke is probably around three minutes long, maybe like two and a half, um, which has been really interesting uh, working on Good Evening Tonight, um, the, which for, if people don't know, it's a weekly news show in the style of basically Weekend Update slash The Daily Show. So we have a uh, staff of writers, and I have a co-host. I come out and I do a monologue, um, just like Conan would, my baby. Uh, and then uh, I go to the desk. We do, me and Paige Hamilton, my co-host, we do uh, weekend update style desk jokes with like images behind us. Characters come on as a, a la weekend update. And at the end, we have a uh, for reals person guest. Um, and so it's been an interesting transition going from like fleshing out like these stories and like, you know, taking what might be a six minute story and condensing it to two and a half minutes and finding the funny parts versus working on a weekly show where we need to write 200 jokes about the news so that we can end up telling 25 jokes about the news. And they all need to be like as succinctly written, like two sentences at, a mo at most. Um, it was a really interesting challenge to make that shift. And uh, I don't know how long I'll do the show. I really enjoy doing it. Um, but if, at any re if at any point I stop doing it and then just go back to stand-up full-time, I am getting so many reps writing, like, one-liners that it's ridiculous. And so I think it'll be interesting to see if my comedy shifts over time now that I've kind of been, like, flexing those muscles so much. Right. So to talk a little bit about writing, what is your writing process when it comes to stand-up? So for stand-up, I write down uh, any idea that I think has some value. Uh, when I first started, it was much more often. Now that I've done it for a while, I can kind of discard some ideas in my head. But if any, I think if anything has some value, whether it be for stand-up or a sketch, um, I write it down on my phone. Uh, write, you have to write it down. Um, I feel like people always say that, but it's so true. I can think of something, and I'm like, this is the funniest thing I've ever thought of. There's no way I would ever forget this. Ten minutes later, I cannot remember what it is because, like, I thought about gummy bears and then, like, totally lost the thread or whatever. Um, 
So you've got to write it down. And then uh, what, when I first started doing stand-up, um, what really helped me is that I would, um, and I think I'm probably more meticulous than some people, but I would sort of write down what I thought the entire joke was uh, word for word. And then I would, because um, I think that that would kind of help me almost in like a college essay sort of way, like organize structure and like the thoughts. Like, all right, I want to talk about uh, donuts. What are, like, these observations about donuts, how do they fit together? How can I make them flow? What's, like, my the funniest thing that I think that I have here? Um, the thing that I think helped me the most is that I would pop my headphones in my ears and I would walk my dog around the neighborhood and I would just kind of go through the whole thing out loud over and over because there's such a gap between writing something down on paper and then conversationally saying it on stage. Um, to your point earlier about like uh, like uh, the things that you can fine tune, like uh, sometimes people will go up there and they'll sound like a robot because they're just reciting something that they've written and memorized, and it can be really good. But so much about stand up is it's, it it all seems so magical and spontaneous if you're doing it right. Um, so I would walk around my neighborhood. I would basically go over it again and again and again while I walked my dog um until I felt like I had refined it, like cut out basically all of the, the words that didn't need to be there, kind of gotten to like the core like four bullet points that I wanted to hit. And uh then I would rewrite it. Um so sort of like free thought outline, go over it a bunch out loud, and then write down the refined version. And then uh, I would try it out at shows. So to dive even more into your mind and how it works um, you you brought up donuts, and I'm just going off that because that's the word that you brought up. And you said you do a lot of observation. Sure. But when you look at donuts, for you, what do you start thinking about that you could potentially use if you were to do a stand-up routine about donuts? Oh, man. Um, donuts. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, here's an example um, taking that. Uh, idea. So I have a joke right now about wine. It's pretty similar. It's just like a, a food slash beverage. Um, it's probably a three-minute joke, and it's all about like the weird like acting that you have to do with your server when they bring you a bottle of wine from the back. You have to go through like this like uh, convoluted process where they pour it out and like watch you drink it and like all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I just talked about like how weird that process is. Like you know any other like glass or any any other liquid that I order it comes in like a glass or a cup, no questions asked. I bring it up, I order wine, they bring it out to me from the back, like trying to prove to me way too hard that it's wine. They're like, Oh, it's ten years old, it's from Argentina, its name is Kevin, huh? Maybe you guys can be friends. Um, like who is this for? Like could have brought me out like V eight and vodka and I would have drink the whole thing because 'cause I'm not a monster and I don't know anything about wine. Um oh. so for that it's like three three minutes on just like not necessarily wine itself, but just like a weird aspect of why do we do this with wine? Right. So is a lot of your comedy like why do we do this? But as a society, uh, yeah, for sure. I, I would say that uh, a lot of it is probably my angle is like, hey, isn't this a weird thing that this happens? Um, a lot of it also is like just like weird interactions that you have. Like I remember growing up, I would watch stand-up specials, and a lot of them are like. I had this weird experience with a person and I'm going to tell you the story about it. 
uh, with jokes all all up in that stuff. And uh, I was always like, man, comedians just live like these weird random lives. But if you documented every weird interaction that you had with a person and then tried to make a joke out of it, like you come up with some pretty weird stuff. Um, so also like a, uh, a few of my jokes, um, especially some that I've been working on lately, um, is just like stuff that happened. And I'm like, this is noteworthy and very strange that a person did this to me in real life. So I'm going to jot it down and then talk about it. I see. Okay. Um, today, who would you call your favorite stand-up comedian? Oh, man. Um, I, I think the best live performance I've ever seen from a comedian is Rory Scovel. Um, he recently taped his special, which is on Netflix now, at Relapse Theater in Atlanta, and I was at that taping. Um, I've actually, I, obviously, I was there in real life. I, I don't know how the special on Netflix turned out. I will say that... Uh, he improvises a lot um, when he performs, and if anyone ever has the opportunity to see Rory Scovel, he is probably the funniest person uh, on earth. Um, I also really love uh, Maria Bamford. I think she's super great. I've seen her live, and I love all of her albums. Um, and for some reason, I always get drawn back to uh, Todd Berry, who's a New York-based comedian who uh, has a bunch of really great stuff. He's active in some stuff, too, but uh, Todd Berry is... He's... Uh, very, I think I referenced him earlier, he's incredibly monotone, and he has just these very, like, succinct, well-written jokes. Uh, word economy is off the chain. And if you were to work with any comedian, who would it be? Would it be these that you mentioned, or there's someone else that you would want to work with? Oh, man. Um, who would I want to work with um, yeah, I mean, I think working with Rory on something would be really cool. I think that um, Chelsea Peretti is a really, really great writer and performer. Um, I, I would love to work with her on something one day. Um, and then I'm also, uh, I really love the podcast Comedy Bang Bang, so if I could ever do anything for Comedy Bang Bang, that would be awesome. I've always said uh, SNL when people ask me that question, but I think I'm too old for SNL now. Well, I don't know. How how old are you? <laughs> I'm uh I'm how old am I? I'm 29. I'm I'm not yet 30. I, I mean, uh I think off the top of my head the oldest cast member currently is Keenan Thompson and he's 39. So, look at that. That's true. He was also on All That when he was like 12. <laughs> but hey, you never know. I could be like you a late blooming Keenan Thompson. Yeah. I can sing are... what's up with that. I can do that. You could star in your own Nickelodeon kids show. I mean, who says you can't? Oh, legit! I would love to be in a Nickelodeon kids show. I would like to like host like a weekly like talk show with kids or something like that. That would be pretty tight. So tell me a little bit about you said obviously that you host Good Evening Tonight. We talked a little bit about that, but being a host of an open mic does that involve you writing jokes or it's mainly just improvised? Yeah, so if you're hosting an open mic, basically uh, it's it's the worst job in the world, but it's also incredibly valuable experience. I think that I progressed light years over the course of just a year because I was hosting sh so many shows um, every single week. Uh, it's terrible. So an open mic is essentially like two hours of just like 
30. I mean, I, I, when I did the local, we had like 30 comics on sometimes, uh, which is just far too many people. And, uh, you, you have to manage all of the people that are at the open mic. So you have all the people, they check in and then you put them in an order. 90% of the people are so mad at where they are in the order. They want to go up earlier. They want to go up later. Everyone's always very upset. Everyone will come up to you the entire time and constantly ask where you are in the order, even though nothing has changed. Um, then, so the, the, you go up uh, hosting any show, but especially an open mic, to an entirely cold room. Uh, people have been talking with their friends. They've been having drinks. Uh, they've been staring at their phones or whatever. And then you have to go from, like, absolute zero to, like, starting a show out of nothing. Uh, it usually takes uh, three or four minutes to get, like, a crowd really going. And then if you have 30 comics on the bill, like, you can't do 15 minutes, so you probably get the opportunity to, like, actually work on one joke. Sometimes the show doesn't really, people don't really get on board until you're five comics in. Um, and so at that point, you're ba pretty much just a babysitter. Um, so usually how it goes is you do a few minutes up top basically just to get everyone in the room to stop talking and look at the stage. And then you bring up each person in the order that you put them in, and then you have to give each person the light when they have a minute left to get them off stage. Every single person will run the light, and then they will come up to you afterwards, and they'll say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I didn't know I ran the light. And then when every person does that, shows are four hours. So uh, all that being said, if you're a stand-up, you should definitely still host open mics and still host shows because – it teaches you how to get out of sticky situations because um, you're going to have to wrangle audiences. You're going to have to get people to start paying attention. You're going to have to get them to stop talking. Um, there are comics that are going to take a good room and make it terrible because uh, of a bad thing that they said or just because they're not very good. You then have to like keep the show moving. If anything weird happens with an audience member or if someone says something hateful, you have to go up and address that. It's sort of just like gives you um, so much. And it also, uh, if you just float around and you just go to open mics and go to open mics, you're there, you're in your own head, you go up and do five minutes and you leave. Once you start hosting shows, you really start to understand what goes into a show being good versus a show being bad. So you host, you learn what's good, you learn what's bad, you learn how to deal with the audience, you learn how to take a room that's not paying attention and make them pay attention. It's all really, really, really great experience. Um, but then you get to a certain point and you're like, all right, I've done this 200 times. I've earned my stripes and I never want to do this again. Right. Well, when you talk about, uh, you know, dealing with something the audience said, that immediately made me think of people heckling. So I have to know, have you ever been heckled? And if so, how did you deal with it? Yeah. So uh, heckling does not happen as much as, like, it's made out to be when, like, you watch stand-up in, like, movies and stuff like that. Um, and I would say that a lot of comics mistake excitement for heckling. Like, sometimes people will be in the crowd and they'll be very vocal, but they're essentially on board and they're agreeing with you. Uh, some comics will turn on those people and be like, you need to shut up. Um, but really, as long as they're not being disrupted to the room, like, just let them have fun. They're just agreeing with you. That being said, sometimes there will be audience members that are either um, talking way too loud, which is not heckling necessarily, but it is something you need to address, 
Otherwise, everyone is going to be uncomfortable that it has not been addressed. Uh, every once in a while, you will get a person who's either very drunk or very much needs a hug and some attention, and they will uh, yell things at you or um, just kind of like engage with you from the audience. Um, sometimes it's stuff like I, I walked on stage at Starbar one time, and some guy was just like, dude, you wrote a pink shirt. It's like, all right. That was a great observation, and then I just moved on and moved into my set. Um, he did not like that I was wearing a pink shirt. The worst that I've ever been heckled was at the the local because that place is uh, was a, a real insane uh, comedy place for a while. Um, I was telling a story that I had never told before, and uh, as I was telling it, this one guy who had been the entire time I was not hosting this time, I was just doing a set. Um, and for the whole show so far, he had been very loud and kind of like saying things to the comics, trying to interact with them. And I went up there and I started telling a story and like 30 seconds of the story, he just goes, that's not true. That's bullshit. That's not true. Which like your premise is all you have when you're on stage. It's like, this is a story that I'm telling for someone to be like, no, it's not. It's not real. Um, and then I was kind of like, hey, man, like you got to stop talking. Like, every comic here, like, hates that you have kept talking. The whole crowd's uncomfortable. And, like, you got to shut up, man. Like, you, you can't yell at me that my story is not true when I'm in the middle of, like, starting to tell my story. And uh, he was like, they love me or whatever. And um, started getting into it. And then he just, he wouldn't let me tell my jokes. And he kept yelling at me. And he kept, like, cutting me off and invalidating the things I was saying. And um, I forget exactly how it escalated. I should, I should probably go into the recesses of my brain and find it. Cause it's actually, whatever I said, I remember being very impressed with myself. But I sort of went off on him because he just kept yelling at me and he had been so disruptive so far. Um, and so I think at a certain point, I was like, uh, okay, okay, you think you know me so well, you know all my stories. Let's play Two Truths and a Lie. Um, I, uh, everyone here hates you. You should go kill yourself. And I think you're great. Um, I think it was like something like that that I said. Um, and, uh, people got on my side and they started, uh, yelling at him because he was being disruptive. And then he ended up, uh, leaving eventually. Uh, it was nice to have the audience on my side, but I remember like, I'm, I'm a very gentle bear on stage. Um, and I had never like yelled at anyone like that. My adrenaline was going crazy. And I was sort of wondering, I was like, was, was I out of line for doing that? But a lot of people came up to me and they were like, thank you so much for yelling at that guy. He was really terrible. And then I went back to that bar the next week because I was hosting the next week. And the bartender was like, hey, uh, you know that guy that you yelled at last time? And I was like, yeah, I remember doing that. And he said, he wrote us a letter and he apologized for how he behaved. I was like, what? I put him in his place so bad that he wrote a handwritten letter and sent it to the local to apologize for his behavior. So I felt very validated and powerful. I know. I should have asked for the letter. I, I wanted to, like, keep it and frame it. I don't know why I didn't do that. They'll, they'll put your face up on a plaque. Yeah, I know. I'm going to the Comedy Hall of Fame, baby. Made a heckler write an apology note. Travis, tell me, you know, you're right now at such a great point in your career. I, I consider you so successful, but where do you look for the future? What's your, what's your dream? What's the next step? So 
uh, in the immediate reality of my future, I think right now it's really about um, continuing to to write as much material as I can, get as strong as I can here, and then uh, get into like comedy festivals. You know, get into something like uh, the ultimate of that is like Just for Laughs. Um, if you can get into Just for Laughs at Montreal and be like a new face, uh, they uh, a lot of people will pay attention to you. It's a big prestige and honor thing. Um, I think in an ideal world, I would love to, I mean, hosting Good Evening Tonight is amazing. Ideal world, I would have my own uh, late night show where I can riff bits and, and do skits. I said a word that I hate people using for comedy skits, uh, sketches and uh, interview people and all that sort of stuff because I've actually really enjoyed interviewing people. Um, in a more realistic world, I think I would love to be a writer whether it be uh, like a monologue joke style writer or uh, like a sitcom sort of thing. Okay. And when people, you know, listen to this and they want to see you perform, where can they find you in Atlanta or maybe in the United States performing your comedy? Max, that's a great question. Um, you can come to, uh, if you're in Atlanta, you can come to the, Brigantine Beer Parlor and Recreation Hall. It's a very long name, but it's a really awesome, beautiful back room that I already talked about uh, behind Argosy. It's the second Tuesday of every month. It always sells out. Uh, we've been profiled a number of times in local papers like Creative Loafing. Uh, I run it with Ian Abair and Janet O'Neill-Smith, who are very successful and talented comedians who have been into a ton of festivals. Uh, we've had a ton of people that have filmed stuff uh, like uh, comedians from LA and New York and stuff like that that have dropped in that have been on TV so that's a really really cool show that people should check out the second Tuesday of every month uh, I run a show uh, by myself called Comedy Night at Second Self which is a really awesome brewery in Northeast Atlanta um, come check it out it's the last Monday of every month it's fun the beer is good and then good evening tonight every Saturday at Highwire Comedy Company it's like the Daily Show and Weekend Update combined in your face at 8 p.m., and we have awesome guests on that, too. And then uh, probably the best way to keep up with me, hey, friend me on Facebook. I could use a few more Facebook friends. Travis Jones Comedy on Facebook. And uh, you know what? I'm going to plug my Instagram, too, because I use my Twitter enough. Travis Jones. You figure out how to spell it. Okay. All right. Well, that uh, look, I'm a lot of plugs. <laughs> And as the final question that I have for you, and I ask every single guest this question, so you're in a good group of people when I ask you this. But I love it. The it's an group. That I have for you, okay? If you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who eventually wants to be in your shoe, what piece of advice would you give them? Oh, man. Definitely keep your head down and just work. If you keep your head down, don't create any drama, don't raise a stink, don't burn any bridges based on your ego three months into doing stuff. You never know who's going to end up running a show or end up being your friend in comedy. Keep your head down, be nice to people, and just work. Um, I was pretty antisocial when I went to open mics and shows and stuff like that, but I grinded and I went to a lot of shows. I put in the work, I would write jokes, and eventually people started to notice and I would get booked on stuff. So if you just keep your head down, be nice to people, and then, like, have a work ethic, you'll be totally, totally fine, and you'll be great at comedy. Awesome. Well, uh, Travis, thank you so much again for being on the show. I I'm, I'm, feel like I've learned so much about stand-up because you were my 
first like stand-up comedian that I've had on. So thank you so much for being on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. It was all uh, terrible advice meant to undermine everyone so that I can ultimately become the best stand-up uh, living today. <laughs> this was all part of your plan. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on, Max. I really appreciate it. No problem. And to anybody who's listening, remember, you can check out Travis at, at Good Evening Tonight at High Wire Theater this Saturday, November 11th, if you're listening to this on November 9th. And if you're not, you can check him out every Saturday at Good Evening Tonight. And you can also see him on his Facebook and Instagram and his many open mics hosting gigs as well. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can find us at our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. You can also visit us on Facebook at Talking Late Night. And you can find us on iTunes where you can download our shows and leave us a review. So thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Mr. Travis Jones for being my guest today, and we'll see you next time. All right, Travis, that was it. Thank you. Cool. Thanks so much, man. That was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on. So a quick couple of notes before uh, we hang up. So first of all, I'm going to get this all edited tonight, and then I will be sending it to you tomorrow, probably between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock. I'll send it to you in an email. and. Cool. You can do whatever you want with it. You can share it on your Facebook, on your Instagram, however you want to share it. It'll be yours. Okay? So that's the first thing. Great. The, the second thing is um, I actually have a, something I have to ask you. Um, I build my guest list from guests who I've already had on. So they recommend people. So Sarah Zerk Brown recommended you. You're actually the first name that came out of her mouth when, when I said, Who's someone you think I should interview? She's like, you got to talk to Travis Jones. You got to talk to Travis Jones. Um, so what I ask from you is if you know one person or maybe a couple people who you think would make for a good interview, and that would be a great person for me to talk with, please, please uh, connect me with them by giving them my email, giving me their email, however you want to do it. But that's just something to that I ask, and I'll remind you of it tomorrow when I send you the email of the show, but I just wanted to let you know now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll start thinking about it, and I'll, I'll definitely have some suggestions for you. And finally, uh, my, my last thing for you is kind of as a, a goof, and I didn't mention this at the show, um, but on November 19th, I'm actually going down to Savannah, Georgia, and I'm going to audition for America's Got Talent. Um, not hoping to, like, <laughs> do anything with it, just kind of so I can have a story of, like, I did this. And I'm doing stand-up. Now, I've never written stand-up a day in my life. I, I've only watched it and talked with people about it. But do you have any tips for me on, like, how to write out a – it has to be 90 seconds. So how to write a 90-second set or good ways to actually write jokes? Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of, like, the uh... – best way to get like a few jokes yeah i would definitely say um like put together what you think like your three or four best ideas are uh kind of write them down try to explore it from different angles um sort of go through it and pick out what you think the highlights are and then i would say like run through it out loud and then definitely say it to a real person because it it can be so easy for like you to put something together in your head and you're like, oh, this totally makes sense. 
but other people aren't making the same leaps in logic that you are. So I would say, like, kind of go through that process of writing and then, like, uh, yeah, run it by somebody for sure. Okay. All right. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I feel like it's pretty generic advice, but if I, I'll, I'll try to marinate on if I have any, like, super awesome tips and I'll send them to you. Good luck, by the way. That should be pretty interesting. Yeah, I know. I, I have no idea what it, what's going to happen. And I'm like, like I said, I'm not going into it where I'm like, I'm going to be the next Las Vegas headliner. I'm I'm going into it solely like, oh, this will be a good story. And who knows if I'm just like barely good enough, I can make it past the producer round to perform for these celebrity judges. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Um. Please, like I said, think of anybody who you think uh, would be a good guest, and I'll be reaching out to you tomorrow afternoon with the show. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Max. Talk soon. No problem. Talk to you later.